Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. This episode is the first of two conversations paying tribute to the legendary science series Nova, the longest-running documentary series on television. As Nova approaches its 50th season on PBS, I had the honor of speaking with Michael Ambrosino, the series' creator, and with Paula Absel, who served as the series' executive producer for more than three decades. First up is my conversation with Michael Ambrosino. In 1971, television producer Ambrosino was in London, taking part in a year-long fellowship program with the BBC, and he happened to see some episodes of a science-based British TV show. Ambrosino was working at Boston's legendary public television station WGBH at the time. He'd been there since 1956, just a year after it went on the air. In 1970, WGBH had become part of the brand-new, government-backed public broadcasting service, a.k.a. PBS. And with new funding, GBH could now think bigger. That's why Ambrosino was in London. While there, he observed the making of several episodes of Horizon, an educational science-based series that, to the surprise of BBC officials, was actually pretty popular with viewers. Ambrosino felt there was a disappointing lack of educational science programming in the U.S., and seeing the success of Horizon spurred him to do something about it. In May of 1971, shortly before returning home to Boston, Ambrosino wrote a five-page letter to the Vice President of Programming at WGBH, outlining in detail a science show for PBS. His idea? To air a series of shows on a wide variety of science-based subjects. That letter has essentially remained the blueprint for NOVA ever since. On March 4, 1974, NOVA made its debut with the tagline, Science Adventures for Curious Grown-Ups. Michael Ambrosino, now 92 years old, spoke to me from his home in Florida. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do share, follow, and leave a review. And now on to my conversation with Michael Ambrosino. Hello, Michael Ambrosino, and welcome to Making Media Now. Hi, Michael. Nice to have you here. It's great to be speaking with you. I want to uh, go into the Wayback Machine and bring us back to May of 1971. If my research is accurate, May of 71 found you in London and you were working on an idea. Tell us about that. Well, I had seen the way the BBC was making science documentaries and they were telling stories. They were telling stories of discovery, the discovery of evidence. And they were doing a wonderful job of doing very complicated programs uh, and making them available to uh, the wide uh, audience of BBC One. And, and your hope was that that type of science uh, television, that type of documentary storytelling could translate in the United States? Yes. Uh, and also, I would have a partner in the TV program Horizon, mm -hmm. which was very important because no one was going to give me enough money 
to make all 13 or 17 or 20 programs ourselves. Plus, we didn't have the people who could do that. But if I had a partner and I was getting their best shows, uh, two things would occur. Uh, it would drop the cost of our series tremendously. Mm -hmm. And our programs would have to come up to that level. First of all, I wrote a long proposal. In those days, I think PBS thought it would be nice to have science in, in the schedule, but it wasn't mm -hmm. that important. Uh, the arts were dominant. It was nice to have a, a program in which you could have a party with Beverly Sills or Renee Fleming afterwards. We raised enough money for the first two seasons. And I went back to the BBC and brought back three BBC producers mm -hmm. to help teach the Americans this new technique, filled out the staff with the best associate producers and production assistants and, uh, that I could find. There were only 13 of us for the beginning of the series. That's remarkable. The idea was to um, do a wide spectrum of ideas, a wide spectrum of techniques. In the first three years, we did two plays. We did archaeology, anthropology, as well as what you might call um, science and technology. Mm -hmm. The words that I used were not, we want to start a science program. It was, we, the WGBH science program, want to show how the world works. And that was a constant theme in figuring out what programs we should do and how we should make them. And you had already been established at WGBH at the time. You, you, your, your relationship you, uh, with WGBH uh, began in the late 1950s. Tell us a little bit about the work that you did for WGBH uh, from the time you started to the time that you decided to create this, this uh, documentary series called Nova, which went on okay. to be a cultural touchstone. The second project I did was funded by the Ford Foundation, mm -hmm. and my title was director. And when the 26 cities that Ford had sponsored were invited to Harvard to tell about their projects, the then controller of WGBH, Hartford Gunn, heard the speech and invited me to join the staff as the 35th employee. <laughs> wow. <laughs> GBH was not very big in those days. No, it was not. Hartford Gunn was probably the most far-seeing executive public broadcasting had ever seen. The first task he gave me was to start school broadcasting for the state of Massachusetts. We started with, um, I think it was 35 communities, and it grew to 115 as uh, it went along. After four years of that, that was well established. He asked me to stop doing that and create the first public television regional network, the Eastern Educational Network, because he believed that the 12 or 15 stations on the air at the time would not survive unless we collaborated and unless we built more stations and unless we did something to aid everybody so that WGBH offered its programs free of charge to New Hampshire and Maine and uh, Western Massachusetts and Rhode Island. After, after four years of that, I found that being an executive was taking me further and further away from programs. Hmm, and yeah. I told Bob Larson, the program manager, that he was overworked and he needed somebody to help him, me. And I became the assistant director of programs 
there was a major upheaval among the staff in 1967. And as associate director of programs, I was passed over and uh, I stayed, even though I was uh, distressed and angry at, at the uh, bringing in new talent from outside. Mm -hmm. However, the new program manager and I, in a disagreement, uh, came to uh, the agreement that I would make a series of individual documentaries in the city of Boston using our mobile unit and using reversal uh, film. And in the middle of that, I sort of said, I think I have the programming chops I thought I had. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take my 40th year off. I don't know who's going to fund it or how I'm going to do it, but that's my plan. I discovered nobody wanted to pay me to sit around and figure out what to do with the rest of my life. You can have your <laughs> midlife crisis all by yourself, Mr. Ambrosino. <laughs> but um, public, uh, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting had had annual fellowships to foreign broadcasters, but to Sweden and to Japan. And my Japanese was a little rusty from army service, and I knew I... I'd be an observer for 12 months. Then they announced it was going to be in London at the BBC. Uh -huh. And I said, that is mine. Applied for it. I received it, brought the entire family over, uh, got a uh, large apartment in Kensington and showed up for work the first day. The first day, my editor, oh, I, I, I told the BBC that the plan they had for me was quite wonderful if I was 21. It was three weeks of eating everybody and then a month observing in 10 different departments. Okay. I, I'm 40. I'm an experienced producer. Yeah. You have a program on the air at BBC One, 45 minutes a night, staff of 80 to 100. If I'm any good, I can have the experience of working at the BBC and you can get an extra body free of charge. And because at that time, every major BBC executive had been a former producer, hmm. I was told, oh, you know what you want to do. That's fine with us. <laughs> and I was assigned to 24 hours and I worked on that program for, for uh, four months. And I worked at the level that the BBC was used to, 27,000 employees with enough money to do it absolutely wonderfully. Wow. And the BBC had the feeling that it hadn't been done unless they had done it. Later, I did move through Features Group and, and discover Peter Goodchild doing Horizons. And he became a wonderful supporter in uh, my interest. And when we started and planned to do Nova, he was very helpful in terms of uh, we would collaborate often on co-productions. Oh, we, you're interested in doing a show on the Maya? How far uh, you know, are you? Oh, well, I've done research. Well, we're about to film. Well, okay, we will be collaborating in your program. And sometime down in a few weeks when we have something again that we might share, you will help us. And it helped both series Tremendously. When you were pitching this idea for uh, a documentary series rooted in scientific exploration to WGBH back in 1971, was it a hard sell? No, not to WGBH. I mean, remember, 
we were across the street from MIT in the original building burned down in 1961. WGBH is made up of a collaboration of the major universities in the city of Boston, plus Mm -hmm. the Museum of Science, the Museum of Fine Arts, the Boston Symphony Orchestra. We were had begun as educational TV, so that we were all involved in teaching, but doing a very entertaining job of it. I felt that I had a hard sell to the audience, to the critics, and to the stations. So the plan was to do 13 programs in the spring of 74, immediately return in the fall of 74 with 17 programs, and the fall of 75 with 20 programs, so 50 programs in a year and a half. That's remarkable. It flooded the airwaves. It The critics got a good taste of us, and the audience got a chance to see in those 50 programs the span of what kind of ideas we were talking about, the span of what kind of techniques we were planning to use. And it met or went higher than many of the programs then on public broadcasting. You're talking about in terms of ratings. In terms of ratings. Mm -hmm. We knew that we were onto something. Most definitely. Tell me about how the name was arrived at. Why Nova? Nova is a supernova, a bright star, so bright that it is seen in daytime. And uh, it is short enough so that you could say Nova, the hunt for the quark, Nova, the search for the moon. It would be short enough so that you would always tie the title of this new interesting program with yeah. Nova. Yeah, because it was Nova that people would remember, and uh, that would help us in in attracting an audience. So you you were branding well before everybody was always talking continually about branding. Yes, we didn't invent branding, but that's <laughs> we, we were certainly uh, cognizant of what we were doing. Yeah, and one one thing I found really interesting was was the way sort of the national press uh, received the programs, and it almost seemed as if they were a bit perhaps intimidated by the scientific rigor of the program, so they they didn't feel like their regular TV critic was uh, qualified to review it. So, what in certain instances these extremely illustrious writers would either review the programs or write accompanying essays. There was a Carl Sagan uh, essay about one of the novas called Life on Mars. And then no less than Isaac Asimov wrote an accompanying essay around uh, one of your programs on chimpanzees. How remarkable is that? We just thought of it was, you know, one of the boys. <laughs> one of the boys. <laughs> That's true. Puts his pants on one leg at a time. Programs come about because producers are in the field and are excited and are smart and uh, push the executive producer to do uh, things that are uh, more inventive and more exciting and more controversial and more troublesome. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's good to be challenged is is fine. And then also you get things like a uh, a telephone call on a Friday afternoon. Uh, Mr. Ambassina, I'm going to be in Boston tomorrow with my wife and mother-in-law. I'd like to show you the hour-long film I've made trying to teach chimpanzees sign language. And you say, well, um, sh- come ahead. <laughs> I had nothing to do Saturday. <laughs> and 
he, I say, well, you know, no, I don't want to buy your film. I'd like to buy about 20 minutes of it because you spent years making this. It's something that Nova could not do. Right. And I will put it to my best team and then go tell your story and tell the story of Coco and tell the story of, of other experiments. Yep. And this became the first signs of Washoe, which was one of our favorite programs. How were you able, particularly in those those initial three seasons, how were you able to sort of maintain a recognizable template, so to speak, for the viewer as to you know what a Nova looked like and sounded like, while also uh, cultivating uh, you know a, a team of contributing producers who felt like they had an individual sort of voice in the series. The, the team of producers were the three producers I had. Okay. And after one year, Simon Campbell Jones went back to London. Okay. And so Ben Shedd, who had been his associate, was elevated to that position. There were not people in America that I could trust to make a documentary for Nova. Okay. Um, and we had to grow them. And grow them we did. In screenings, the first question went to the production assistant, what do you think? Interesting. That person who was being trained, the production assistant who does all the scut work, was involved in the research period, was involved in helping uh, in, in the editing, so that everybody uh, was involved. Um, it, it was very important to create a team that would challenge each other yeah um, and smart people don't have to be challenged much they they challenge you sure yeah and through that process that you described that allows you uh, to to establish this sort of institutional knowledge and sort of this you know this institutional approach no science company helped fund nova polaroid our neighbor to the north, run by four people that we knew intimately because they gave us cameras for the auction and they supported Julia Child and they were nice to talk to. They gave money for Nova, but no one else. It was very hard raising money. For how long did that persist or was it for the entirety of your three season reign? For the three seasons. And then in, in the fourth season, um, I raised some money from Exxon uh, as I was passing the series on to John Angier. It made it easier for him to raise money for the fourth season. You know, when I was doing some uh, research, learning about you in preparation for this conversation, it, it came as a, a surprise to me that your academic background was not in the hardcore sciences, but in in more in the arts. Uh, well, tell I, me about that admitted, metamorphosis. I was admitted to two universities, Syracuse and Notre Dame, to major in physics, and the first day of registration. I switched to the School of Drama because... That's a big change. Well, I had done all the plays. I had done all the music. I was in the concert band and the marching band and the dance band. I had them. My thought while doing this was I don't want to wake up at the old age of 35 and not having given the creative side of me a chance. Yeah. There, there was that itching to do things other than teach. It worked out. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it mystified, terrified my mother. 
<laughs> I would imagine. I would I would imagine. So tell me about how you think that that appreciation for the arts, that talent for the arts, how did that inform and contribute to your sensibility as a filmmaker? We were telling stories and stories have a beginning, a middle and an end. Even though it is a documentary, it has a beginning, a middle and an end. Act mm-hmm. one, act two, act three. A sense of pacing, a sense of taste, uh, a sense of how to use words. Uh, all of these things uh, from that theater training came back and, and helped. But my producer certainly had uh, more of a science background than I did. And um, they were also smarter than I. And the idea is you hire smart people and they challenge you and you help them do their best work. As you have seen science programming throughout particularly cable television uh, evolve over the decades. Obviously, the uh, advances in technology, whether it be in terms of on cameras, in editing, in after effects, can, can really enhance an aspect of the storytelling. But do you ever think that that comes at the expense of the gravitas of the science content? The program, science should have gravitas, but the program shouldn't. Sure. It should be be easy to understand and delightful to see. And it should move with pace and and drama. And it it should surprise the audience at certain times. We tried not to take ourselves too seriously. I wanted to see us use different formats. And uh, we did so. It was one big experiment. And it succeeded. Now, we were happy to see it go to that third season. Uh, That was not a sure thing. And the fact that it is about to do its 49th season is beyond comprehension. Truly remarkable. Yeah. Well, I I think it's because it succeeded in in doing it, in showing how the world worked. When you you yourself were you know, ever relaxing in the evening and you see that the the television institution that you came up with, you know, is referenced as a an answer to a question on Jeopardy or it's, you know, it's, it's referenced on The Simpsons or Nova has become so ingrained in the popular culture. How how do you respond to that? That's what we wanted. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Yeah. And, and mission accomplished by dozens of bright men and women. Sure. Uh, some we trained, some the people we trained, trained. Uh, some the people we trained, trained, trained the, the people who are doing season 49. Yeah. And it's possible now to find people around the United States and the world who can make a program of the type we're talking about. Uh, bright, clean, understandable program about the science of discovery. You can't make a film about the Crab Nebula that anyone's going to understand. You can. And British filmmaker made a film called the Crab Nebula about the three men and the one woman who were doing experiments to find out what powered this nebula. And it was a it was a huge pulsating star, a pulsar. Of course, the three men got Nobel Prizes and the woman didn't. Uh, several programs could be made on that subject. 
Yes, no, no doubt. After you left, have established and ran Nova for three, what I imagine to be exhausting seasons, just judging by the output that you were just sharing with us. You know, you maintained a very active uh, presence in some uh, very um, influential PBS programming, including including Eyes on the Prize. Um, And even today, uh, you're speaking to us from Florida. It's evident that um, intellectual engagement and in engagement with the culture seems really important to you still. What do you what 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 inspires you on a, on a daily basis along those lines? Learning is the best entertainment. The fact that uh, Pelican Cove has a its own university taught by its own residents uh, is a big draw here. Well, I'm a young 92. You're a young 92. You most certainly are. Except I, I wrote a piece recently. We, we also have writing classes here. And I wrote a piece recently called I Dance with Doctors. <laughs> and there, there was a, you know, there was a doctor's meeting this morning, you know, keeping me fit and keeping me alive. I, I am a cancer survivor. Fortunately, had the least aggressive of all 31 lymphomas. And I am buoyed by the generosity and quality of the human beings who live in this place. And that's why we're here. We wouldn't be in Florida had we not found Pelican Cove. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us about uh, as we're approaching the 50th anniversary of Nova. Uh, It's a fascinating story. And quite obviously, (laughs) your your role in it was indispensable as the creator and the originator. So thank you very much for your time. Yes, but one reminder, I did not make one Nova. I have made a front line. The act of making a film is collaborative and it's wonderful. Most of and you have an editor like Eric Handley who says when we're making films together, no, Michael, I don't think you want to do that. Oh, Eric, what do you think I want to do? Well, let me show you. Bing, 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 bing. Oh, saving face. That's nice, Eric. Let's leave that in for now. <laughs> <laughs> but with without the the uh, associate producer, the production assistant, the, uh, the the talented cameramen and soundmen and women uh, and editors, um, you know, you, you you'd be standing in the middle with your pad and pencil. Your visionary intelligence is only exceeded by your humility. And again, thank you for your uh, your priceless contribution. And thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me okay. today. Thank you, Michael.